One Week Season. Fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, Hilo and X here shortly. Coming to break down with a special, I don't even know what we're still calling this podcast, special Saturday podcast on Wednesday for this Turkey Day Thanksgiving slate. We're going to cover all the strategy angles that we see. We're going to take a look at some other stuff. But before we get into that, we have a exciting announcement. The first two winners of... The mission giveaway sweepstakes winners from getting all those uh, edge points and all those missions, the first two winners are being announced. One will win a one-on-one coaching one will win a one-on-one coaching session with myself. The other will win a one-on-one coaching session with Zandamir. Now, We've talked a lot about how it's almost impossible and very expensive to get a lot out of coaching sessions um, on a short time frame. So we're going to try to keep these between 30 minutes and an hour. And what we would like to do is the winners, we would like you guys to come up with some stuff that you would like to talk through, go over, adjust process, whatever that you think that you need to work through on your personal game. Come with a sheet, and that is where we will focus on for that short amount of time. Without further ado, the first winners, again, for those one-on-one coachings, Brandon Sugihara and Steven Kleisaf. So congrats to you guys. Again, one-on-one coaching session winners, one with myself and one with X. More to come on that good stuff. X, my man. I'm wondering who those people are. Like, I I wanted to know Discord names. Like, who are those dudes? Yeah, right. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm. We'll find out. I know. If uh, I guess we should add winners. Please get in touch uh, with Roto Maven with Aaron, and we will get the details ironed out. All right. Good stuff. X, you cooking some prime rib, my brother? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's sitting in the fridge right now. Uh, it goes in the oven tomorrow. We've got the potatoes cooking right now, uh, making the heart attack che- super cheesy potatoes. So if uh, you don't hear from me on Discord anytime tomorrow, please call 911. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, it's going to be good. My wife made pumpkin pie. We're excited. Well, at least we'll ready know you. At least we'll know you went out uh, living your best life there. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, we've all got to make yeah. choices in our lives, right? Like everyone dies somehow. Yeah, that's right. I would uh, much prefer going out on top of the world eating some heart attack mashed potatoes, dude. Yeah, that's how I go. That's how I go. <laughs> that's right. All right, man. Let's talk a little football here, huh? We got this uh, very super interesting three game slate coming up on Thanksgiving. Um, Chicago and Detroit is the early game, and I guess before we even jump into like the the games and the teams here, like one of the interesting aspects of the Thanksgiving slate is we all are watching the same games at the same time. And there's only one game at a time. So there's going to be, I know there's going to be some uh, late swap stuff that we're going to talk about, particularly with the one of the 
better game environments on the slate being the last game. And I think from a from a macro perspective, I think the game environments themselves are probably increasing with each game, um, which again adds a, an additional strategy layer that we're going to probably get into here shortly. But um, but yeah, these games, Chicago and Detroit being the first game on the slate, it is the game with the uh, lowest spread, but also the lowest game total. We jump on over to Las Vegas and Dallas, the middle game, um, with some obvious uh, paths to an elevated game environment, obvious paths to a shootout. But what we expect is we expect Dallas to kind of control this game. Um, and we're still working through some injury news with that game uh, pretty heavily here. And then we get to the late game with Buffalo and New Orleans. We know kind of, you know, from a macro perspective, New Orleans kind of wants to build an offense around the run. We know Buffalo kind of wants to build an offense around the pass. Well, what, what, like, what do we have working for us here? Well, we have two teams that have like elite run defenses. Star Latule is expected to be back. Tremaine Edmonds um, is expected to be back for Buffalo. Um, those are the two big reasons why their run defense has been as good as it is. Obviously, with Star Latule as the nose tackle. And then Tremaine Edmonds as that inside linebacker that really is um, a big part of the reason why they are so effective against the run. So if you start thinking about different ways for that game to play out, like we, if you know if Buffalo gets up to a lead, we can expect New Orleans to increase the pass rate. We kind of know or assume that Buffalo, um, with Brian Dabble against a difficult matchup to run, that they're already going to lean pass heavy. So that's kind of why I call that game probably the best game environment on the slate. What do you see in, you know, from a macro wave top perspective from this interesting three game slate X? Oh, man, this is <clears throat> so Thanksgiving and the playoff slates are my favorite slates um, in, in the NFL season. And the reason why is I love <clears throat> the way that, that they play out with one game at a time and you can see how you're doing and you can see what the field's doing and then you can adjust accordingly. And that just opens up like so much in the way of opportunity for like to strategize and just approach the slate really smartly. So like, um, <clears throat> like let's take this one. So like, let's say I, I assume David Montgomery is going to be one of the highest owned players in the slate. I haven't looked at ownership projections, but I'm, I'm sure that's the case. And so, yeah, of course. Um, yes. And so, you know, let's say like, let's just take a simple like micro example. Like if you play David Montgomery, uh, and he does okay, but not great. Well, now you kind of know where you stand related to everyone else who played David Montgomery. And you, so you know that you're kind of on par with everyone who played him and you're behind people who didn't. You can look at who else was played from that game. So at the end of every game, you have like, you have more information to make decisions about what you're going to do the rest of the day. And that just gives you so much opportunity to adjust smartly. And uh, Aaron is texting me frantically uh, about like his connection dropping. <clears throat> And that gives so much edge because most people don't late swap, right? Like we talked about this in the last show, like how, you know, FanDuel sent, gave uh, Roto Grinder some data a couple years back that like fewer than 5% of players ever utilize late swap. And so it's a massive edge. And we know that people are going to be doing it on Thanksgiving because people are going to be eating and hanging out with their families. And so if you have no life like me, you can just be like ready to adjust. And I mean, you know, I could be ready to like, hang on guys. Like I got downstairs and, and make some adjustments to my lineup. My wife will be like, what the hell? Um, <clears throat> but she'll suffer it. And it just gives you so much edge. And so 
you know, the game environments themselves are like Hilo uh, phrased it really well, where they're sort of escalating game environments, right? The first game is, is expected to be the lowest scoring game. Um, and then the, the middle game, Las Vegas at Dallas is like the middle scoring game. And then the late, and then the late game with Buffalo at New Orleans um, is the sort of highest, uh, at least potential game. Um, and then there's also like late news or there could be late news Like we got Elvin Camaro is ruled out. Um, but there's like uncertainty too. Like we don't know, uh, is Mark Ingram going to play? And if Mark Ingram doesn't play, then who's the running back for New Orleans? And I've even seen like on Twitter, I, I have no idea of the credibility of this yet, but I've, I've seen on Twitter like some whisperings of like Taysom Hill might start and I don't know if that's true. Um, but it is like the, that, in, that uncertainty is opportunity for us. Um, and it gives us opportunity to adjust late and to embrace volatility uh, in smart ways. And the other cool thing is there's really big showdown slates for these games, which allows you to tackle them individually or you can hedge. And so, like, for example, let's say you're going into a late, the late game, last game, Buffalo, um, <clears throat> and let's say that you don't have Steph Diggs. And let's say that you, you know, you're doing really well. Uh, maybe you have, a, maybe you have a lineup with Josh Allen and Emmanuel Sanders or whatever, and but you can't get to Diggs. And so you're like, okay, the one thing that can sink me, like this lineup is going to do really great. Uh, and the one thing that can sink me is Diggs having a giant game. Cool. Go build some showdown lineups with Diggs captain. And you can, you can sort of hedge your full slate exposure with individual game exposure as the day goes on. And like, that's like, I love this. I love the Thanksgiving slates because they open the playoff slates are the same, um, but they open up opportunities to, to do things like that um, that allow the sort of active player who's paying attention throughout the day and is available to think through and make pivots throughout the day. It just gives you edge that you that you don't have on on any other slates because, uh, you, you know, you've got early games and late games, um, <clears throat> but that's not as you know, that's not quite as split as like one game at a time. And so like take it if you're going to play, take advantage of that edge. Right. Like make, uh, you know, make make bold decisions early. Um, whether playing or fading, and then be ready to adjust uh, as the day goes on. It's also a day where, at least I feel, it's it's worth entering multiple lineups um, because it gives you the best chance of being able to adjust smartly, of having the right pieces from the from the earliest games or, or, or avoiding the wrong pieces. Um, and so, like if you're playing, like if you play one lineup normally and you put you you enter you know put a hundred dollars a hundred dollar single entry tournament, um, consider doing like you know, three lineups in a $33 tournament instead, like a three max or, you know, <clears throat> 10 lineups in a $10 tournament or something like that. Consider like doing multiple lineups because the, the more flexibility that you have, uh, the more opportunity you have to get everything to come together the right way um, and allow you to, you know, to win something. But like Thanksgiving slates have, for me at least, have always been uh, one of my favorite slates and one of my most successful slates of the year. So it's my favorite day. That was long. Sorry. I, I get excited about Thanksgiving slates. No, I absolutely love that. Yeah, dude, I absolutely love that. One thing, or a couple things, I'll add um, as you were talking that were kind of popped into the old noodle. Um, what do we have basically available to us from the first game? And think about like how you want to build rosters to be able to either capitalize on that or avoid any pitfalls or landmines, we'll call them. So, like, what do we have in the first game? Well, we have. A Chicago backfield that has been thinned out via injuries. So we expect um, Dave Montgomery to really have the backfield to himself. That said, and this is 
things that we need that are extremely important to think through, David Montgomery is currently projected for 50 to 60% ownership. And on a three game slate, that is, is pretty extreme. So we're looking at David Montgomery. He has two games this year and he's played, uh, he's played basically six games. So a third of his games, he's seen four targets. The other four games, so two-thirds of his starts this season, he has two targets or less. Okay, so that's pretty actionable information, right? So this is a yardage and touchdown back who has the safest floor on the slate, but if he's not scoring touchdowns and hitting the yardage bonus, there is solid, solid leverage to be had by not playing David Montgomery this week. And so these are the things that you need to to sift through, particularly considering one, Dave Montgomery is expected to be the highest owned singular player on the slate and two, that he's in the first game. So if David Montgomery comes out and has a floor game, like, yes, it's the highest on the slate, but like if he comes out and has a floor game, catches one pass and doesn't get in the end zone, he's scoring maybe 10 to 12 points, right? Like that's not going to get it done when we're looking for the top scores at the position on a three game slate. So if he's 60% owned and goes for 10 to 12 points, the field is immediately thinned by 60%. You're playing against 40% in the field if that should happen. So again, just I'm not saying play Dave Montgomery. I'm not saying don't play Dave Montgomery, but these are the things that you need to think about. So think about how you're, if you're playing MME, how are you going to approach the stance on? Dave Montgomery in particular, how are you going to leave yourself the ability and the flexibility to be able to make some adjustments after we get more information from that first game, exactly as X was discussing. So the two highest expected owned running backs are from this first game in DeAndre Swift and David Montgomery. Those are also the two players with the most bankable volume on the entire slate. So it's it's an interesting catch-22 situation where I would want to have exposure to both, but I also am leaning, just because these guys are expected to carry the most ownership, I'm leaning on an underweight approach personally to give me that flexibility in the later games. We start taking on more risk if those guys hit because we know they're so heavily owned, and we can start um, you know gaining serious leverage if one of these two guys or both god forbid but if if both of these guys flounder and hit a floor game on the first game of the slate like you're playing against like 20 percent of the field now because both of these guys you know dave montgomery 50 to 60 percent ownership deandre swift is like 40 to 50 depending on where you look right now so there's a lot to think about particularly with a slate where we get more information as the afternoon goes on any thoughts on that x yeah and i think like one of the hard things about slate, like really small slates, is you, you kind of need this. The you kind of need to be optimal, especially in, in a large field tournament. You basically have to be optimal in order to win. Um, in a smaller field tournament, you don't have to be completely optimal, but you still have to be likely pretty close. And so, you know, it's trying to figure out the best plays, especially on this particular slate, where I feel like the best plays are both a pretty obvious but b also pretty fragile um you kind of you're kind of in this spot where like you can play who you want and it's not about like is dave montgomery a good play is dave montgomery a bad play um like that's not the kind of assessment you should be doing right now for these games i think um dave montgomery is a good play deandre swift is a good play um <clears throat> they're probably two of the 
probably three best running back plays on the slate or four maybe. Um, <clears throat> but the issue is not, are they good plays? The issue is just, you just need to figure out where you want to put your exposure, where you, where you want to be, you know, where you're going to embrace the chalk and where you're going to be different. And it's kind of, I mean, every slate's like that, right? Every Sunday slate's like that too. Um, but this is like, this is that same sort of dynamic, but in like a microcosm of just three games. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of how I think about showdown where you have to recognize that there are there are going to be good plays that you just have to decide that for strategy reasons, you're going to decide to either play or not play. And it's not about your assessment of are they a good play or not. So like what I'd encourage everyone to do is just completely set aside the the concept of is this guy a good play? Um, like, do I expect this guy to score a lot of fantasy points? Because that's somewhat irrelevant on this slate. What's relevant is the strategy angle that you get from each play, whether you play or don't. Um, and like, I'm trying to think, this is a rambling thought. I'm trying to think of how to be more concise with it. But like, you know, play David Montgomery, play DeAndre Swift, or don't, but recognize what you're doing with that. Like, you could avoid this game entirely, um, but it's likely, not it's not guaranteed, but it's likely that at the end of the day, the winning roster um, of a tournament is probably going to have at least one player from every single one of these three games. And so com- having zero of a player of, of a game um, on a roster is it doesn't make you it doesn't make it impossible for you to win. Um, it could play out that way, but it's pretty unlikely. So think about that. Like if you decide you're not going to play Dave Montgomery, what are you betting on? Are you betting on the Bears failing like completely? Um, well, okay, then the Lions defense would become attractive in that scenario. Or are you betting that, you know, Dave Montgomery just doesn't score the touchdowns? Cool. Then who does? And on a relatively low scoring slate, uh, you're, it's likely that, you know, anyone who scores a touchdown, unless it's like their only touch of the game, uh, is going to have a strong tournament score. So, you know, think about like, okay, if you're not playing Dave Montgomery, what you're essentially saying with that decision is you're either betting on the Lions, or sorry, the Bears failing, or you're betting on the touchdowns coming through other players. And so you've just got to, um, you know, you've just got to make those decisions intelligently and and with a strat, with a sort of with a strategy mindset. And again, it's not, there's not a right answer of like, Like the decisions you're making and sort of the downstream impacts those decisions have on your roster. And that brings up the next point that I want to make. Um, and that is kind of the sense that you got when you were reading the edge write up of this slate, and that this is an extremely high variance slate. Why <laughs> is that so? It's not because it's a short slate that adds to it, but that's not the driving reason of why this is such a high variance slate. The reason is. It's a low scoring slate. And so a lot of the end of day optimal roster is going to be driven entirely by touchdowns. And we know that touchdowns are extremely variance driven. So, yes, David Montgomery is one of the top running back plays on the slate. That is clear and obvious. That said, like he scored three touchdowns in six games and he doesn't catch passes. So if he is not scoring those touchdowns, but we still expect Chicago to score. And then on top of that, oh, by the way, Chicago is expected to be an extremely concentrated offense because Allen Robinson is doubtful. Um, so we're expecting, you know, Darnell Mooney, Marquise Goodwin is 
currently questionable. So maybe him, maybe not. We don't know. And Demir Bird as the top like pass catchers from this offense. Throw in Cole Kmet as the as the tight end, but they also are running three tight end sets with Cole Kmet, Jimmy Graham, and Jesse James. So all of that to say is like if David Montgomery isn't scoring the touchdowns and he's not catching passes, he is not going to be optimal. That said, if we still expect Chicago to score, like who is benefiting from that in a direct fashion? And that is one of these other, you know, possibly low owned guys that we just talked about. Darnell Mooney is going to be one of the top owned wide receiver on the slate after picking up 16 targets in his last game. Um, But realize that was in a game where Chicago is slinging the ball uh, with new red rifle coming in to save the day um, after Justin Fields left with injury. So yeah, right. This is the world we live in. And like, <laughs> like we're going to talk about it here shortly, but like, look at the running back situation in new Orleans. Good gravy. Like there's, there's some stuff going down on the slate for sure. Um, and picking through it and thinking logically about our, if then statements and how we approach a slate like this is going to be paramount. Like the, the core of roster construction that we talk about how to approach a full slate that is kind of tailored to a full slate, right? Because we are, we are trying to put ourselves in position for less things to have to go right. So that is managing variance. At the same time, we want to score the most points when things do go right to make sure that when we do hit, we hit for the most money. Well, this slate is more like a showdown slate than it is a full slate. And as the, as the amount of games in a slate or the slate size shrinks, we increase our variance acceptance more and more. So like showdowns, we're like, yeah, I'm playing the third tight end because he's 200. And if he catches one pass for a touchdown, he's optimal. We don't have to go to that extreme, but we are like literally hunting for touchdowns this week because this slate is so expected to be so low scoring. So consider all that. Definitely put put that into your thought process for how you view the slate because... The lowest scoring game and the the worst expected game environment is this first game. We look at the, the Lions in that same kind of thought process. The Lions on the season have scored 33 points in that week one kind of surprise shootout with San Francisco. Since then, their high, the most they've scored in a single game is 19 points. 17, 17, 14, 17, 11, 19, 6. 16 in overtime tie. That was awesome. 10 against Cleveland. <laughs> so like if Swift is not scoring the touchdowns, he's still going to bring a solid floor. And that's what leads me to like in a vacuum, like Swift a little bit more than Dave Montgomery, you know, take out matchup, take out everything else and just look at like pure range of outcomes. Swift has the probably arguably higher floor because of his past game involvement. We've seen that kind of be all over the place this season, but like looking at the slate from a macro perspective, like who's going to score the higher score if neither back scores a touchdown? Well, it's probably DeAndre Swift. That said, Swift has scored six touchdowns across his first 10 games. So again, like this is not a prolific offense, prolific offense. And this is not, these are not two teams who are going to be pushing the pace. So take all that in, kind of think through how that changes the dynamic of the slate and marry that with like how 
am I going to be flexible to build around that on my lineups? Sweet. Any parting shots uh, <clears throat> with that first game or like macro roster construction-y perspectives here, X? Yeah, I'll just throw out this. Like, Think for a minute. How many players on the slate do you think, when the slate is done, how many players do you think will be in the winning lineup in tournaments who didn't score a touchdown? Like guys who got their purely three yardage and volume. One to two, maybe, is my answer. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, you're going to need to hunt touchdowns, especially because it's a low scoring slate or the you know low game total slate. And I wouldn't be surprised if the answer ends up being zero. Um, you know, that's pretty. I think that's well within the the range of outcomes here. And so, and and recognize that uh, touchdowns are the uh, the hardest thing to predict, right? We can predict who has touchdown equity, um, but in terms of predicting who's actually going to get in the end zone, you know, that's 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 the hardest thing to do in DFS. And so, you know, on full slates, we often uh, can chase guys. There's, there's a lot of guys out there on a full slate who who can get there purely through yardage and and catches. And you know, we we hope they score touchdowns. <laughs> that sure helps. But you know, there's there's guys who can put up good scores without it, and it's unlikely on this slate. So, you know, recognize that we're, this is a slate that just has a lot of variance associated with it because of that. There's just not a lot of like matchups and players on it who could feasibly get there without scoring a touchdown. Like I would argue what Deandre Swift, um, maybe like Cole Beasley or Steph Diggs, maybe, uh, who else? Maybe TJ Hawkinson. If he has one of his big target games, Maybe I don't even know. I'm like I'm I'm stretching beyond that. I'm having a hard time thinking of it. Maybe Darren Waller, if he has one of his big target games, like his you know ten plus target games. So there's just not a lot of guys who can get there without touchdowns that get that have enough volume or could see enough volume in a spike volume week um, to get there without getting into the end zone. And so just recognize that you're chasing the hardest to predict event in football. And so you know I build accordingly. Um, it's a slate to embrace a lot of variance. Uh, picture yourself just to kind of hammer this point home one last time picture yourself tomorrow after this first game has run and picture yourself sitting there having just watched jimmy graham score two touchdowns like is <laughs> is that, like how are you feeling <laughs> what is that doing to you but like that is entirely possible and that is something that we kind of need to account for like if if one of these like random fluky things happens in the first game, like 90% of the field could be sunk. So this is, these are the kind of things. Uh, and again, I'm adopting an MME approach just as, as X alluded to earlier, which is probably the more optimal way. But like, if you're, if you're playing 20 lineups and you play Jimmy Graham twice, like, I don't know, like that's going to be five, six, seven times the field. So you're already in a place where you can now adjust. And if he misses, you're still rocking eight lineups. So, these are the kind of things that I'm thinking through on the slate. What can come of this first game? And I'm really, I'm looking at it like, like from a first game backwards. I'm only concerned with what is going to be in my roster from the first game and I'll mm -hmm. assess afterwards. And I'm going to be able to, to build my portfolio around different things going right in that first game. And once that happens, you can adjust from there. So 
if if like Swift and Montgomery come out and are the they each score and they you know Montgomery hits the rushing bonus and Swift catches seven passes, like they're going to be probably one of the, you know two of the top three running backs on the slate. You're also going to be playing with forty to sixty percent of the field still. So consider how you would need to adjust that. On the other side like I alluded to earlier, consider what would happen if like Jimmy Graham or even Jesse James, if he scores a touchdown, um, which we've seen already this year as well. We've seen, we've seen Jimmy Graham has, okay. Jimmy Graham has three red zone targets on the season and they all came in one game. That is absolutely incredible. Like he's just a guy where he can come out and get this random usage out of nowhere. And he's really only a red zone threat. Um, so all of, he plays like 20 to 30% of the snaps, but they're typically majority of them coming in the red zone. So that is a, one of those fluky outcomes that, you know, could happen that we need to be considering. So consider both of those extremes, consider where you want to be allocating your rosters to build a portfolio, to be able to take advantage of different scenarios from the first game and then adjust from there. Yeah, and I want to note, like, I think, you know, an MME approach is one viable way to approach this slate. But if you don't want to muck around with playing Jimmy Graham, you can also just play small field stuff, right? You don't have to play, like, the giant field stuff and, like, hope to get Jimmy Graham or Jesse James right. Um, you know, you can play the small field stuff. You don't have to worry about that as much. You know, the, the potential winnings are lower, right? But, like, that's another way to approach the slate viably. How yeah, many times we mentioned Jimmy Graham in this podcast? I, Good grief. I, was, I want somebody to be counting. Um, and I don't want people to think that I'm just saying go out and play Jimmy Graham. I just want you to be like thinking about what could happen. Again, like JM has kind of talked about. And for those who listen to the Tuesday uh, podcast from JM, I think he absolutely crushed that podcast because he very clearly stated and articulated the fact that on a slate like this, it is far more valuable from an expected value standpoint over time to be thinking about what could happen on a short slate as opposed to what is likeliest to happen. That is the last time I think I'll say Jimmy Graham, but don't write off me saying Jimmy Graham one more time, Jimmy Graham. Okay. I think it's out of my system now. (laughs) What a world. We're talking about Jimmy Graham this much. Um, And, you know, it's not about Jimmy Graham, right? It's just about like those embracing those like high volatility plays. Yeah, one more. It's about embracing those high volatility plays because, uh, you know, those are the kind of plays that like almost every short slate. um, There's some play like that where like, you know, it's it's a roster that that's largely chalky and there's something like a Jimmy Graham play and everyone looks at it and it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this one. And it's like, okay fair that you couldn't have predicted jimmy graham in particular um but just about every short slate it's a play like that whether it's jimmy graham or not it's some like it's some like long shot play mixed in with overall like strong on paper plays and hilo's point about only caring about the first game makes a lot of sense and especially because on this particular slate uh the pricing is such that salary is not really much of a limiting factor and so you don't need to think about, well, like, well, I need to grab value here so that I can afford the guys, you know, the other guys later. Like, you can just kind of play mostly who you want um, and not worry to, like, terribly about pricing. Um, so that means that, like, you can really kind of can just approach each game as, like, an individual environment. And I think, that's, I think that's the way to go, right? Like, build for one game and adjust from there. Each of your lineups should tell a story about each game, but you can write that story as the day goes on. 
Yeah, I <laughs> love it, man. The next thing I want to talk about is how the first two games interact. And again, we go from a single game mindset, what could happen in the first game? And then after that, how do we adjust with that in mind? The first place where it is a very clear placeholder, I think, and again, I call it a placeholder because we're not too concerned with the actual, how an actual roster is looking after the first game. We're concerned with what the outcome for individual players were compared to their ownership. The perfect case, I think, to illustrate that point is David Montgomery versus Josh Jacobs. Josh Jacobs is in that second game. He is priced $100 in salary less than David Montgomery. And, oh, by the way, he's like starting to see targets, um, so, which is interesting in a change. Um, changed a little bit after John Gruden left. So look at his last three games. He has four targets, five targets, and seven targets. And he's caught all but two of those balls. So that is from a like from an expected fantasy point perspective, five to seven targets equals more expected fantasy points than a rushing score. So if like, and we know Josh Jacobs is like the de facto number one red zone option on this offense. So in my opinion, like he carries a similar floor. He's not being treated that way. And the ceiling is there as well. So. When you get these two players priced $100 apart from each other that have very, very similar ranges of outcomes, um, and that's just from a, like, on paper, what could happen in this game range of outcomes, like, and then you look at their ownership, and hold on, I want to look this up real quick to highlight this. Dave Montgomery, 55, updated 55 to 60% expected ownership, depending on where you look. We have... Josh Jacobs at 30 to 35% ownership. So, I mean, that's almost half of the expected ownership of David Montgomery is a pretty significant ownership delta on a three-game slate. And again, that's not saying like I'm choosing to either play Josh Jacobs or David Montgomery. It's just like I'm looking at it as like a placeholder um, on a roster that does not have David Montgomery. So think about those things. Um, and how after the, I guess the overall, what I want to get, the point I want to get across here is after the first game has played, I want to be thinking about the interaction of game one and game two and go from there. Cause realize what is David Montgomery to Josh Jacobs? It's a direct pivot. They're priced a hundred dollars apart. So rosters are going to look very similar. And at that point, you're basically just saying, I think Josh Jacobs is going to outscore David Montgomery and I'll figure out the rest. So um, that's what I'm doing is looking at game two as how it interacts with game one once game one is complete. Your thoughts, X? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to say, I'll set aside Josh Jacobs, um, which, I, which I think is a fine play. Uh, you know, I think I, I see him the same way you do. He actually, I think, has, I want to say he has more targets than Montgomery on a per game basis this season, like overall. Um, but I think the way you're thinking of it is smart and like, and then you want to think about like how those plays offset each other. So like Dave, like let's say Dave Montgomery has a bad game and he scores eight points. 
um, at that point, I would be very attracted to playing Josh Jacobs because I know that the likelihood is that Josh Jacobs outscores David Montgomery, even if Josh Jacobs doesn't have a huge game. And now like that play just puts me past 50% of the field, right? Um, and I can just sort of, I can, I can play that safety play, right? Like the likelihood that Josh Jacobs surpasses eight points is probably seven between 70 and 80% likelihood. And so I play Jacobs and it just, it shoots me past, you know, the 50% of the field that has Montgomery. If Montgomery has a big game, then it gets trickier because then I might say, okay, a, a direct line pivot to Jacobs. Jacobs would need a bigger game. Like if David Montgomery has 25 points, um, and then I, do, do I do I want to say, well, I think the I think that Josh Jacobs is what's his chance of scoring over 25 points? A very low percentage, right? Whatever it may be. And so then I would probably say, okay, probably the smart thing now to do here is go a different direction, right? And say, on my, on my rosters that don't have David Montgomery. Uh, I need to make you know, and, and this guy just smashed at 50% ownership. I'll have him on some rosters, and so those rosters will kind of build around. the success story for do something like either a and like this is tougher on the slate salary is pretty loose but okay roster comp are hard to get if you have david montgomery and i haven't i haven't looked on DraftKings, but like maybe if you have david montgomery it's pretty darn hard to play all of digs and waller and cleared from the concussion protocol right maybe it's really hard to play the three of them and then one of the quarterbacks because you've spent a lot of salary action and hope that like those guys if those guys have ceiling games then it's then it's perhaps possible that Montgomery's see Montgomery's big game is sort of superfluous if you can't afford to have Montgomery and those other guys on the same roster uh, and so like that's how I mean that's how I would approach like thinking it through sort of game by game is like you know you can sort of approach it like building you know the building as you go and building your portfolio as you go and I'll also note here if you use an optimizer and build a bunch of lineups. You have to be really thoughtful about how you approach this, per, like this type of uh, slate. Um, you know, optimizers nowadays have like a re-optimize capability, so you can like upload something. You can upload your rosters that have like the players locked, and then uh, they can it can sort of re- it can rebuild around those locked plays. Um, but you want to be really careful as you're building to like like think about, for example, how many. How many rosters do you want to have that have zero bears or zero lions or zero of either? Um, because if you just sort of go like set your exposures and your allocations, your correlations, then hit run, uh, it's going to get distributed and you might not end up with the like, you might end up with very, very few rosters that have like no bears or no lions. Um, and so you want to like make sure that you're building thoughtfully and checking your work, checking your results uh, to make sure that you're kind of getting the right combos of, of of number of players from each team in each game that you want to have. And and so the way I'd approach it there is I'd build them in clumps. Like I would do, you know, I, I build, thir- I put 30 rosters that have no one from the first game. And then I'd put, you know, 20 rosters that have one bear and 20 rosters that have one lion and then 30 rosters that have one of each, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. Um, <clears throat> and just trying to make sure that I get sort of the right distribution that I want because 
Otherwise, like I've, I've done this before. I fall into this problem of like I've you know just kind of run 150 at once on a Thanksgiving slate like years ago before I knew what I was doing with optimizers. And then like a guy smashes and I'm like, cool, let me go find my rosters with that guy and then I'll build around those. And then I found that like all of my rosters with that guy also had some other dumbass on it who failed. And I was like, well, shit, I really wanted to have some with just that guy. And I just didn't end up with it because I wasn't being careful as I was building. So if you do use an optimizer, just just be careful and, and just check your results and make sure that you're getting the the roster constructions that you want to have. I love it. Love it. And I think um, to add that, like, pay particular attention with where the players, like what game on the slate the players are playing. So I would have a process to look through for an MME um, optimizer I guess spit out whatever spits out um, your CSV. Have a process to look through and pay attention to one. Where are the players being put? Like, do I have any rosters that have players in the flex? Do I or that are in that first game? Do I have uh, rosters that are you know that those kind of things? Like the the general DFS theory stuff that you might not be able to catch if you're not looking back over your rosters here. Uh yeah, I think that's all I have to add there. What are you what else are you seeing from this second game from a macro perspective, X? Oh god. Um <clears throat> so it's funny. I feel like we just had this discussion last week about the Raiders and the Raiders defense. And and then I felt bad because then uh people were in Discord being like, Why isn't this guy hitting? And the the like God, T. Higgins, why is he why is he so horrible? Um the Raiders defense is quietly really, really elite against wide receivers. And I just want to mention that again. Um, and it's not that a wide receiver can't hit, but especially on a three game slate, I think that people are going to fixate on the Cowboys passing attack. Uh, and then maybe even, I don't even know, maybe even more so than the Bills passing attack because everyone knows the Saints are a good defense. I think the Raiders are sort of a little like a little bit more quietly a good defense, especially against wide receivers. And so, I think there's value in in underweighting the, the 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 Cowboys passing attack. We also know the Cowboys have become one of the more predictable teams in the league in terms of how their offense is going to run. Where, you know, unlike other teams that it, it's somewhat harder to predict the sort of run pass balance on a given week, the Cowboys uh, are, are pretty predictable. Where if they're up or the game is close, they're going to lean very very heavily on the run. And if they fall behind there, then that's when they kind of open things up in the passing game. And so we can use that to our advantage as we kind of predict the game flow. <clears throat> and, and I think just overall predicting game flow is more important or not, not predicting, but having each roster you build tell a story of game flow. Um, and it's kind of like how you do in showdown, which is maybe a little less important on a full slate. Um, but I think is even more critical on a short slate. So like if the Cowboys win this game, and if they win it somewhat handily, then it's really likely to come through the run game and then with the passing game kind of operating more in the middle of the field. And so that that means like Dalton Schultz becomes a really strong play there. And then Ezekiel Elliott and or Tony Pollard um, are really strong plays in that scenario. And then the, the Raiders are going to be likely kind of playing catch up. 
through the air. And while Dallas has had a really effective defense um, and they like their DST unit has scored a lot of points from time to time, it's worth noting that Dallas's defense is really aggressive. And so their DST can score a lot of points because like their their cornerbacks feels like they're trying for an interception on every single play, uh, which sometimes they get. But if they miss, then they can give up some big catches. And so, you know, the Raiders aerial attack, like the Raiders have looked incredibly broken the last few weeks. Um, but like, I like the Raiders aerial attack here because I think the matchup just lines up well for them. The game environment lines up well for them. Um, and on a really small slate, like you want to find guys who uh, come in at low ownership, but still possess ceiling. And so perimeter wideouts who can get there on limited volume uh, fit my definition of like low owned, high volatility plays with, with, significant ceiling so i can't believe i'm saying this but like zay jones brian edwards um deshaun jackson like you can play any of those guys uh on as a raider in your comeback again like and you'd want maybe like and you want probably want like zeke or pollard there because the story you're telling is the raiders pass volume is elevated because they're playing from behind um in which case the cowboys are likely running it down their throats a lot so that's how i'd approach this game um or you can approach it from the perspective of uh, you know, Josh Jacobs and the Raiders run game versus the Dallas passing game. Like I'm probably going to approach this as like, I want one side's run game and the other side's pass game, because that seems to like be how these teams kind of like, that's how these teams are playing where, you know, their pass rate is very tied to game situation, much more so than a lot of other teams right now. While you're speaking, it also brought up something that I forgot to cover from the first game that I really want to cover, and that is with the defensive position. So if we look at expected ownership, the defensive position, there's three teams that have 75% of the expected ownership. That's the Bears, the Lions, and the Bills. So both the teams from the first game and then the Bills. Okay, so that's 75% expected ownership on three defenses at one of the most volatile and variance-driven DFS positions. So that is something that I'm going to be utilizing heavily as a means of generating leverage. You look at the Bears defense, like they have the top with, you know, without a doubt by miles, they have the top net adjusted sack rate on the slate. That said, you know, they have 31 sacks on the season. That said, they've generated only 10 turnovers, five interceptions, and five defensive fumble recoveries. So what are they doing? They're prioritizing a basically a second and third level. So the linebackers and back, they're prioritizing a prevent defense, you know, preventing splash plays against on those two levels. And they are bringing additional pressure and looking to get after the quarterback. That has not led to turnovers generated in the sense that this is not a ball hawking defense. This is not the, the bills. This is not the saints who, although they have only three defensive fumble recovers, they have 11 picks on the season. So this is a team who is a ball hawking defense. So we look at like the range of outcomes and I really want to drive home again, the, the, I guess the process of selecting defense and divorcing the idea of point suppression in that. And that 
gains increased um, leverage on a short slate because the fact that defensive scoring is so such a high variance act just from a pure a pure football sense because if a defense if one of these six defenses scores a defensive touchdown they will most likely be the optimal defense the raiders can do that at 2400 the lions can do that at 2400 the saints can do it at 2900 and the um the cowboys are x just got done describing how aggressive this defense is the cowboys at 3300 21 sacks on the season 15 interceptions four defensive fumble recoveries and four defensive touchdowns their ownership their expected ownership checks in fourth at 10 to 12 percent so it's kind of interesting to think about defense being a separator on a short slate but it 100 percent could be the difference between shipping a tournament and like barely cashing that's how tight it could be so think about those things i am far less likely to play even the top three expected ownership defenses on a short slate like this. And that I think thought process kind of stems from a little bit of what X talks about in showdown with his defensive selection. Like correct me if I'm wrong X, but your, your process on defense in showdown is underweight, highly owned defense and overweight, low owned defenses. That's, That's kind of the thought process I'm taking here. That's all. Yeah, that's that's my defensive strategy that I just do every single showdown slate is I want about 12 to 15 percent of every defense, no matter what, no matter who they are. And, you know, that puts me under the the really highly owned ones and well over on the the field, the ones that people view as poor. And and honestly, if, if I were doing 150 lineups on Thanksgiving, and I don't think I will, um, if I were doing 150, I'd probably want to do a similar approach here where I'd probably just sort of even like evenly distribute my defensive allocations uh, so that I'm well, I'm well overweight Dallas, New Orleans and Las Vegas and well underweight Chicago, Detroit and Buffalo. And the point there is this, that it's the hardest position to predict Uh, the correlation between defensive ownership and defensive production is extremely poor. And so, you know, over time you make you make money to sort of fading the field on defense. Yeah, and this isn't even like a large stretch of the imagination kind of stance I'm taking here. You look at look at New Orleans. We talked about their their metrics, their stats here. Eleven picks, three defensive fumble recoveries, twenty three sacks, and two touchdowns. Look at Josh Allen. He's thrown five picks over the last three games and fumbled the football twice in those games as well. Lost one of them. So like this is. All we need from one of those defenses is them to get one to two turnovers, a couple of sacks, and they score a defensive touchdown, and they could be double the point total of any other defense on the slate. So just an interesting thing to think about. The other one, the Cowboys, I kind of talked about them um, pretty in-depth, but the the two defenses I like the most on the slate are the Cowboys and the Saints uh, for kind of for all the reasons that we talked about. Yeah, the state's ownership is honestly kind of shockingly low to me because they're probably the second best defense on the slate behind the Bills in terms of just like take the matchup out of it, just how good the defense is. Um, you know, the Bills are, like, I think, the most talented defense on the slate and the Saints are the second. And, you know, Josh Allen, the Bills offense is good, but it's also been very up and down all year. Like we, we've seen the Bills full, absolutely flounder against, frankly, some bad defenses. So I think the field's kind of underweighting the likelihood of the Bills struggling here. 
And um, again, trying to just really drive home the, the thought process behind a short slate here. But you look at Buffalo and New Orleans, these are two teams who are seventh in their respective conferences. So this game means a whole hell of a lot more that so than like the other two games on this slate. Like Las Vegas, okay, they've lost three in a row uh, after Dingle McQuasenberry stopped playing. Uh, they're at five Every and five. Dallas is, <laughs> Dallas is pretty much in the driver's seat um, of their division. Chicago and Detroit are bottom feeders in uh, the NFC North. Um, chasing, well, Chicago is, is hanging in there-ish. Um, but like when you look at like what these games mean, like the clear most like I guess from a season long perspective for these two two teams, like the game that means the most is Buffalo and New Orleans. And when you get when you look at the makeup of that game, pretty much on both sides, it is a strength on strength matchup for how these two teams are likeliest to approach this game. What happens from a theory perspective when you get a strength on strength matchup that just means a wide range of outcomes so if buffalo is expected to carry all this ownership on defense and new orleans is expected to carry zero well this is an extremely wide range of potential outcomes from a real life football perspective so again that goes into a little bit of a thought process here and how we set ourselves up to be the most profitable um, if we were able to play the slate out, you know, a hundred times as JM says. I just want to note something really quick on defense. We're kind of talking about defenses here, <clears throat> which is on a three-game slate, don't be afraid to play players against the defense you're using. Um, and especially this is all this goes back to optimizer usage, where if you're using an optimizer, most of them will default to not allowing any players against the defense. Make sure to change that. Uh, you know, I think that you 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 want to allow I even I mean <laughs> I'd probably even consider modest exposure of my quarterback against a defense. Um, and in that case, you're basically just rooting for like a, a return touchdown as the sort of differentiator for the defense, because if the quarterback gets sacked six times, he's unlikely to be able to put up a big score. He's not, he's not likely to be sustaining drives. Um, but like, you know, if Josh Allen leads a drive for 60 yards and then throws a pick six and then he immediately gets the ball back, right? Like, this is a low, low percentile outcome, but we've seen it happen multiple times before over the years on, especially, and then we see it on short slates as being a differentiator. And it's just an e sort of an easy way to separate from the field that a lot of people just won't do, right? A lot of people are in that mindset of like, I don't, I won't play, you know, an offensive player against my defense, but be willing to on this slate. Yeah, dude. Could Josh Allen throw for 303 and New Orleans be the highest scoring defense on the slate? Yes, <laughs> like that is a valid and viable outcome. Like Josh Allen paired with two of his pass catchers and the New Orleans defense and a New Orleans pass catcher, like that is a valid approach on the slate. So think through those things. I love that you brought that up because um, I was thinking through that last night after I wrote up this slate um, about how we can differentiate smartly, but still put ourselves in high upside situations. I love it. Uh, sweet. Anything to add on kind of these? I know I kind of went off on a defensive tangent there, but anything to add on these first two games, how they interact or anything from a macro perspective? Uh, I don't think so. I think we've covered them. All right. I, lo I love uh, love Tony Pollard. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> you're my boy, Blue. Yeah. Also, I, 
I kind of wrote up that game with that undertone as well, like Fade Zeke played Tony Pollard. There's also a case to be made that both of them see 14 to 18 running back opportunities and neither one becomes a differentiator. Like yeah. Zeke, Zeke has a game this year. What was it? Was it last week, two weeks ago? Well, I'm going to find it now that I'm thinking about it. Um, it was two weeks ago where he had against Atlanta, where they won 43 to three. Zeke had 14 rush attempts, three targets, two touchdowns and put up 21 fantasy points. So like he can score two touchdowns and not be this like large differentiator. And if you're paying 8K for Zeke and Josh Jacobs scores two touchdowns at way lower ownership and way lower price, like that's a differentiator. Um, so think about those things. There are there's a legitimate scenario from that Dallas game where Pollard outscores Zeke and is highly valuable. There's a legitimate scenario where Zeke scores two touchdowns and is the top running back producer on the slate. And then you're going to need that. So that is viable. And then there's also a legitimate case to be made that both of these backs are kind of utilized uh, in conjunction with one another and neither of them absolutely destroys the slate. So again, think about all those different paths or different ways that games could play out uh, and adjust accordingly. All right, let's move to the third game. And I'll let you speak first because I've been talking a lot. But what are your macro thoughts on this third game? Uh, and then from an interactive perspective. Uh, this is an interesting. This feels like a very barbell shaped outcome kind of game to me. Um, because as you mentioned, right, it's there's it's a strength on strength matchup. And that tends to introduce a range of outcomes. So like, it's going to be really hard for the Bills to see success in the air here. Or sorry, in the ground. Um, the and um, it's going. You know, the, the path here is through the air for them. It's going to be really hard for the Saints to see success through the air. The, their path to success is on the ground. Um, but we have a Saints offense that's missing a tremendous amount of players. Uh, it's possible Taysom Hill starts. Um, that would be amazing. I would love that, especially if we don't get news until after all the other games are locked. Um, it's possible that Mark, Ing- like Alvin Kamara is out. So we have Mark Ingram still, I think Mark Ingram is still questionable, I believe. Um, so it's possible we get Tony Jones and as the lead back. And it's also possible that we get someone else as the lead back. We talked last week about how Tony Jones was back and how they must go. They clearly like him because they kept him as the number two back in the preseason and they cut Latavius Murray. Um, and then they didn't use him, right? They let Mark Ingram <clears throat> be like the, the workhorse last week. And that tells me, that maybe they don't like Tony Jones as much as I thought they did. And so, you know, he could be the next man up, um, but he could not. We could, it could be Dwayne Washington for all we know, right? And so all this is all this is to say, there's not just a wide range of outcomes in the way the game plays out, there's a wide range of outcomes in the player usage on the Saints specifically, right? Like at the quarterback and the running back position, there's there's a lot of uncertainty there right now. And maybe we'll get clarity between now and then, maybe we won't. Um, I kind of hope we don't because I think that you know more uncertainty uh, favors the the prepared and thoughtful DFS player. Um, but so the way the game's likeliest to play out is the Saints are going to try to keep the ball on the ground, right? They're, Trevor Semyon has not been widely wildly successful as a quarterback, and the matchup is horrendous for him. So, and that's the way the field's going to play it, right? The field's going to play Tony Jones or or Mark Ingram. The field's going to play the Bills' passing attack uh, and the Bills' D. Is like the, that's how the ownership for this one is is shaping up. Um, it looks like, <clears throat> excuse me, the ownership on the Saints' passing attack 
is shockingly low. The highest owned Saints pass catcher I'm seeing right now is about 15% for Traquan Smith, which on a three-game slate is astoundingly low. Um, no other team is that low, is, is anywhere near that as far as their lowest owned pass catcher. The, uh, the next lowest owned pass catcher, pass catcher on a team is Hunter Renfro at 36%. Um, actually, sorry, Darren Waller beats him. So, you know, the, no one's playing the Saints passing attack, basically, TLDR. And no one's playing the Bills run game, which I think is reasonable because the Bills run game has devolved into a three-headed monstrosity. Um, you could take shots there, but I think the smart way to play this game <clears throat> is either betting on it being... Uh, sorry, let me back up. <clears throat> There's a couple ways to play the game. One is you have to consider what you have so far. And so if you have a fairly chalky roster from the early games and that and that roster has been successful so far, cool. Um, but unless you have the absolute nuts, uh, you're likely going to be sort of playing in the middle of the pack. And there's going to be a lot of people of the same kind of plays you do. Um, you know, like if you're playing the, if you have like the really high, the highest owned guys from the early games. And so you can then think about, you know, do I want to play for cash? Uh, and just kind of be like, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll play the safest plays from the last game and know that this roster is going to cash and I'll feel, and maybe I'll get lucky. Or you can think about, do I want to play for first and think, okay, maybe, you know, I should come off of, uh, since I'm right in the middle of the pack, maybe I should come off of some of the highly owned Bell's passing attack and maybe I should embrace some variants and play like some Saints passing attack instead. Um, if you're behind, um, then it clearly makes sense to embrace variance and get off of the chalk the chalk build um, for the last game. Um, but also, if you've successfully if you've successfully avoided the any like early landmines, like if uh, guys like Darnell Mooney or Dave Montgomery or DeAndre Swift dud early on in the early games, um, then you know that you're and you, and you've avoided them then you can sort of play then you can play the chalk in the last game and be like look i've i've avoided the landmines there's a lot of rosters out there that have been cratered by dave montgomery scoring six points um so i'm just going to play like the safe way for the last game and this is kind of what we've been talking about of how you kind of build as you go and you evaluate where you're at compared to where the field is at um so the likeliest way the game goes is the Bills passing attack and the Saints running game are where the points come from. Um, but I think there's definitely like different ways to play it. And there's also there's so there's variants you can embrace in the roles of like uh, playing, you know, considering Taysom Hill, uh, which is pretty thin, but or, or considering the alternative running backs <clears throat> in the Saints backfield and thinking maybe it's not Tony Jones who gets all the run. You can also play the Saints passing attack and say, like, look, maybe it's not the Bills passing attack that hits here. The Bills, the Bills. Uh, the Saints past events is very good. Or you just go with the lowest owned. Like, you know, the the, the ownership we're seeing on the Bills passing attack is is much more so Steph Diggs and Cole Beasley are projecting for like two X the ownership of Emmanuel Sanders and Dawson Knox. And so you can kind of pivot to be like, look, I'm still going to be on the Bills passing attack, but I'm going to take the lower owned side as opposed to the higher owned side. So there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And this is the game where you're going to have you'll have the most information on where you're at and what your chances are. And you'll know if you're playing, you know, you'll know if you have a chance at playing for first uh, on a given roster, or you'll know if you have a chance at just trying to salvage and play for a cash, which, you know, is still better than losing money. Um, but you'll know more here going into the last game. And the last game is, I think, also where, the, where you're going to have people 
uh, struggling to late swap because it's the last game, which means it's the time when people are, depending on what time zone they live in, they're either, um, <clears throat> you know, they're either sitting down to eat or they're like in a tryptophan coma uh, and not and not up for going and making, you know, making roster edits. So you have the most information and the most opportunity to make changes here. Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking through it. There's just a lot of variance in like the roles in the last game, which is super interesting. And uh, and there's just people are staying away from, uh, I think, you know, some primary options that are in a tough matchup, but tough matchup doesn't mean they don't have a ceiling, like for the Saints, you know, the Saints uh, receivers. That doesn't mean they don't have a ceiling. It just means their chances of hitting that ceiling are lower. I love it. And that goes into kind of what JM said on Tuesday strategy session as well. Like the Saints offense has three guys that have been seeing between six and eight targets weekly. So any one of those guys can put up four to six catches, 80 yards and a touchdown and be completely viable at, at depressed price and ownership. Um, so I love that. The last thing I want to talk about about this game is a little bit of field misconception, I think, around this Saints defense. The Saints defense, one of the top overall defensive units in the NFL. That said, they are extremely pass funnel. We look at their defense. Where are they allowing production? Their average depth of target when targeted as a defender, so the average length of pass the ball travels through the air down the field when um, at target for their opposition is 9.2 this season. That is third deepest in the league. The yards Can after catch. Yours? Yes, please. The yards after catch that they've allowed. You would think that this Saints defense that plays an above average rate of man would be kind of towards the middle to bottom of the league. They have allowed the 12th most yards after catch on the league, uh, on the season. They blitz where they're blitz. They've blitzed 91 times, which is right in the middle of the league. So there's a lot of this stuff. Or actually, one more thing I want to bring up here. One more interesting stat that I found digging through this. So we often think about the Washington football team as this just sieve of pass game production. Well, their numbers from an underlying metric standpoint are very similar to the Saints. Um, Past defensive unit. The Washington football team has allowed 2,514 yards through the air. The Saints check in just under 2,400, so difference of about 120 yards over the course of 10 games. They, the air yards, um, the Washington football team is clear in a way, has allowed the most air yards in the league, uh, but New Orleans is bottom half at 1,298. We went over the yak numbers. The big differentiator is Washington has given up 22 total passing touchdowns on the season, and the Saints have only given up 13. So think through that stuff. There is definite possibility for under-owned splash play upside through the air against this Saints defense. That's kind of where I want to leave that exploration. Uh, any thoughts on that? before we kind of wrap this up and I think we're going to try, yeah, we've been about an hour. So this is going to be a shorter podcast, obviously only being a short slate, um, but we'll open up to questions here shortly pending any parting shots. X. I'm just going to say again, Emmanuel Sanders. I heard that Emmanuel. Yeah. 
He's like, to the slate. Emmanuel so Sanders if, and Jimmy Graham. Another, God, another <laughs> useful thing here is like <clears throat> one thing I find useful is go look at the team totals. Um, and so the team totals, right? Like there's the Saints, Bears, Lions, and Raiders are all pretty clustered, right? Like within three points of each other. And then the Cowboys and Bills are by far the highest. So cool. That's a starting point. Then go look at the ownership on those teams and say like, okay, let's, if we just look at Bills and Cowboys and we see like Tony Pollard, 13% owned, uh, Bills run game, terrible matchup for the Bills run game, but they're all projecting at like just a couple of percent ownership. Um, we see tons of ownership on CeeDee Lamb, on Steph Diggs, on Michael Gallup, on Cole Beasley. We see much less ownership on uh, Emmanuel Sanders, on Cedric Wilson, and we see very low ownership on like Gabriel Davis, on Noah Brown. Um, lots of ownership on Waller, or sorry, on, on Schultz, um, but very little on Knox. And so this is like an exercise that I use too to figure out like who's being overlooked on the best offenses. Um, and just like, you know, trying to figure out like if we look at the best offenses in the slate, the teams that are likely to score the most touchdowns, we know this is a slate we're going to have to capture. You know, in order to be in order to be in a winning lineup, a player almost certainly has to score a touchdown. So one of the exercises here is where do I find low owned touchdowns? And you can chase like Cole Komet on the Bears or TJ Hawkinson, or you can chase like whoever the hell the Saints tight end is going to be. One of the seven they're going to play. Um, but like Dawson Knox is on the highest or the second highest total team on the slate. We've seen him be sort of ex- evolved in a very explosive way on this offense. Um, and this isn't like a Dawson Knox you know, diatribe, um, but it's just trying to figure out like if you're trying to find low owned touchdowns, it sure makes sense to start with the teams that are projected to score the most touchdowns, right? Um, <clears throat> because that means there's more likelihood of an extra touchdown to go around. And, you know, if, if the if the Lions only score one touchdown or two touchdowns, like you got to get pretty fortunate to guess, you know, which line gets a touchdown. If the Cowboys score four, you have twice as good odds. If you're a random Cowboy getting a touchdown as your random lion. Um, so that's an exercise I find useful, at least. I don't know if you will as well. Um, but, you know, you can you can target the the good game environments uh, in a smart way and still uh, achieve modest ownership. I also just want to note from a roster construction angle that, uh, you know, I think anyone who anyone who hangs out in Discord knows that I'm the like never too tight end person. And like I think that there's some joke running around in our Discord about like anytime someone mentions too tight end, it's like saying Beetlejuice in front of the mirror and I show up. Um but like a slate. All right, X. Uh you cut out in the middle of that if you can still hear me, X. Um can't hear you now, but I'm gonna go ahead and field some questions. The first one was from begin four eight six. Um, on a slate like this, where no game environment looks phenomenal, how do you think about game stacking and even overstacking? Completely, one hundred percent, without a doubt, that is viable. So, if one of these games goes for sixty points and neither of the other two do, obviously that game is going to be a separator differentiator. X, I think I got you now, dude. Are we back? Yeah, got you again. I have no idea what happened. My 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 headset was just like decided to mute itself, and then it has a little button on it, and I pressed the button, and it like would not unmute. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's all right, man. That's a couple of times that's happened this year oh, too. I know. <laughs> I need to get a new headset. Also, <laughs> yeah. TLDR like lineups, like two tight end lineups are entirely vulnerable. Wide receiver is the weakest position, as what was what I wanted to get to. Was what I wanted to get to, and it's going to be owned at a really high rate because people are used to playing wide receivers and they're used to playing wide receivers in the flex. 
Um, so wide receiver to me, I think is the weakest position on the slate. And so I just wanted to say like do tight end has my blessing, uh, this week. <laughs> there you have it. Omni, Omni, Xandamir, somebody clip that and record that and we'll put it in discord. <laughs> that is a, a running joke though in the discord. And I love it every time that somebody mentions too tight end, uh, and they're like, Oh, Uncle Zandamir is going to come in and chastise <laughs> us. Because <laughs> most of the time it's a terrible play, right? Yeah. But, on short, but on short slates, it's uh, it, it becomes it becomes a much a much much stronger play. I think somebody even took it to the extreme of like on a showdown. Um, there were like five tight ends who were going to be seeing the field a bunch, and they built a lineup that was like all tight ends and screenshotted it and put Splendor, it in their actually. Discord. <laughs> Blender did it on Twitter. He had like a lineup with six tight ends, and then he joked about it being just rushing touchdowns. And I think like one of them actually either scored a rushing touchdown that week, or like scored one, but then it got called back or something. Something weird happened with that because we were talking about it on. We were, we were chatting about how weird it was that it actually almost worked. Tight ends and showdown, man, it's ridiculous. That's funny. Um, the last question that uh, was read on a slate like this where no game environment looks phenomenal, how do you think about game stacking and even over stacking? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends on the tournament you're in. So I've definitely seen small slates won by an overstack that has like five or six players from one game. And you're just you're just capturing the one game that goes nuts and the other games fail. And yeah, I think I heard you talking about this a little bit where you like, you know, one game scores, one game goes for 60 plus points and the others go for like 40 each. Um, so that's possible. I feel like this particular slate doesn't feel like it lines up super well for that for me. But if I was going to do it, it would probably be the Dallas Raiders game. Um And small field stuff because you're hoping to capture like all the scoring that the team does. The last thing I'll say on that question is a nod to level three game theory understanding. Um, the field is utilizing game stacks at a much higher rate, and they're going to transfer that to this short slate. So because we have a lower chance of any game absolutely erupting here. We could see that that is an over-owned relative to percentage chance of happening outcome. So uh, again, something to think about. I don't know the right answer. That's uh, that is more of a an an educated guess. I won't even call it an assertion. So that's an educated guess based on what we have been seeing this year. And again, like my job is to take in the data and formulate most optimal plan of attack from that through game theory understanding. Um, and based on what we've seen this season with the field becoming sharper, I think that that might be an overowned uh, from a pure percentage chance of happening. And I think that that thought is directly related to the last game on the slate in Buffalo, New Orleans, uh, or sorry, in the middle game on the slate in Las Vegas and Dallas as the likeliest game to uh, blow up here. So if doing that, I think the optimal way would be to like game stack the Chicago Detroit game or game stack the Buffalo New Orleans game as the two games that are less likely to be game stacked. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. 
The last question was 14 paragraphs long, so I don't think that I'm going to read it here on. I think that question might be best answered in the chat. Um, with that said, are there any questions live? Anybody want to raise their hand and ask a question live? We'll leave that as the final thing before getting out of here. I can't believe we spent like an hour and 20 minutes talking about a three game slate. Is that good or bad? I think 40 minutes of it was talking about Jimmy Graham too. So. Yeah, it's all the Jimmy Graham talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to laugh my ass off when I'm the only one of Jimmy Graham now. <laughs> and he scores two touchdowns. Say, just, just wait for him to get, you know, three end zone targets and drop all of them. Yeah, his, yeah, exactly. His three, his three targets in, or his three red zone targets in that one game, like two were off target and the last he dropped. And then Jesse and then Jesse James will score a rushing touchdown. <laughs> All right, y'all. I think that's going to do it. Again, congrats to the first two winners from the Edge Points contest and the missions uh, contests. Uh, more to come on that here shortly. Uh, but we are going to get out of here. We look forward to uh, seeing y'all at the top of the leaderboards for Thanksgiving Slate. Enjoy the time off. Enjoy the time with the family. Drink your beers, eat your pies, and we will see you guys on Saturday. <laughs> Don't drink too many beers because you need to do some lineup adjusting throughout the day. Just remember that. I have plenty of practice doing that drunk. <laughs> Thank you, Zandemir. <laughs> All right. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I'll we'll see you. See you.